All right, good morning. Turn, if you would, to, to Genesis. Book of Genesis here. Um, I have been in John a long time in Sunday school. If I say anything about John, ignore it. We're not going anywhere near John today. So just, just know I mean Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 this morning. This is going to be a little bit, uh, a little bit unusual. Uh, if we're trying to, to place this in the realm of, of sermons, uh, this is going to be a little more like Stephen's uh, wide-ranging uh, coverage of Old Testament history rather than uh, diving into a particular text. Okay? So that's going to be what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to uh, kind of give an introduction to, to Genesis. Uh, this will guide, this is, these are the themes, these are the, the ideas that we're going to be tracking with over the next year or so uh, as we work through this book. Uh, and so this will be a little more like if you've, if you've been with me in Sunday school and we've started a, a, a lesson, we've started a series, this is that, this is that lesson, right? Uh, who wrote the book? Why is it here for us? What are the benefits? What are the big ideas? Uh, and so we'll work through this on the, on the slides today. Normally I would give you a handout. Uh, the slides will we'll kind of take the, uh, the place of that here this morning. So that's where we'll be, uh, we'll be going. Uh, before we get started, let's uh, start with a word of prayer, and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for the, the opportunity to be here today, and, and we thank you for the opportunity to, to gather around your word and to, and to think around your word. Uh, Father, as we, as we look uh, at Scripture, uh, both Old Testament and New uh, we, are, we are clearly uh, impressed with the fact that these, have, these scriptures have been written for our benefit. Uh, even if they are uh, old in their origins, even if they, they seem to apply to, to people who, who are no longer present with us, uh, Father, we understand uh, that they are written for our benefit, for our edification, and for our, our, our knowledge and our instruction. Uh, and so these books, they become extremely important to us. Uh, they, they become foundations. They become guides. Uh, they let us see who you are and, and how you interact with man and, 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 and what, you, what you like and what you dislike. Uh, and, and Father, for us, uh, that is extremely valuable. And so I pray, Father, not only for today, as we look at the, the themes and, uh, and the general content of this book, uh, but as we work through this series, uh, that these are not the, the long ago, far away kind of concepts that, that some would present them as, and sometimes we fall into thinking. Uh, but Father, these are, these are live, uh, vibrant, uh, living scriptures that are for our benefit and, and for our good. Uh, and, and, we should, and we should dwell on them, and we should have opportunities to dwell on them and think through them uh, and come away with a, a deeper understanding of you uh, and worshiping you uh, more in light of them. So give us, give us grace to do that. Uh, give, uh, give me and, and Pastor Mark grace, as, uh, not only as we look at that this morning, but as we look through it through the course of the year. Uh, Father, I pray that your word uh, through, those, uh, through that intentionality is, is accomplishing what it's, what it's meant to do through your spirit. So, so give us grace for this. Give us grace for this this morning. Uh, and Father, we will, uh, we will praise you as we look at this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so the, the book of Genesis is, a, is an interesting book for, for probably many of us. Uh, different, different of us in this uh, room or in different places in our lives from, from a spiritual perspective, from a Christian walk perspective. Uh, there are probably some in this room that you may be, uh, you, you may not be very, very old in the Christian faith, very mature in the Christian faith, and you may not spend a lot of time in Genesis, uh, right? You may be spending much more time in the New Testament, uh, thinking about the words of Christ, thinking about the death of Christ, thinking about, uh, thinking about what, is, what has been laid out in the, in, the, in the New Testament, and you may not have gone very far back to think about, well, what's going on in Genesis? Is it even important? Doesn't it even matter? It may not even really, it may not even be something that rings true to you. Uh, and then there is going to be others in this room 
where you have been hearing about Genesis since you were, since you were crawling on your knees, uh, right? And I, I find myself in that, in that category there. And for us, it's a very, it's a very, different, it's a very different perspective. You, you know these stories. I can go through, I could, say, t- I could ask you, tell me, tell me stories from Genesis, and you could probably, well, there's this one, and there's that one, and there's this one, and you could probably rattle your way through there. Uh, but if I were to say, now tell me what themes connect all of these. Tell me, tell me what purposes uh, these have. Why are, why are these recorded for us? Maybe one or two you can give me, but often you can't for the rest of them, right? Uh, and some of that comes because of when you were taught these stories. It came across to you just as a string of stories that you were told. And this is, this is just what we do in Sunday school. This is just what it happens. And you're not a place in life to be able to put those bigger themes together. That's, that's, you're, just not, you're just not prepared for that at that point. It wasn't presented that way. And so for, uh, for those of you who find yourself in this point, my purpose as we go through the, the course of the year, as we go through Genesis, is to kind of, kind of flip that around, right? You know the stories. I'm not surprising you with anything new. You're not blown away by the fact that there's a creation and that Abraham exists. That, that's not going to be true for you. Uh, but to be able to say, uh, this is the reason why we're discussing Abraham here. Uh, this, is how, this is how Joseph fits into this picture. Uh, this, is, this is why uh, we're looking at Methuselah, <laughs> right? Why are we looking at these things? Well, there's, there's a reason. They've been recorded for specific purposes, and they, are beneficial to, they were beneficial to the children of Israel and were recorded for their benefit, and they are beneficial and they are helpful for us today. And so that's the goal, right? Uh, for those of you who have never co- gone through the book of Genesis, you will know the book of Genesis. For those of you who have been taught the book of Genesis in some format, to kind of bring those things together, to kind of tie together some loose ends uh, that you may not have, uh, may not have considered and, and may not have worked through. So uh, benefits for us as we, as we go through this book. Um, Again, we're doing introductory work today. You, if you were in Sunday school, you got that with Proverbs, so you got more of it here now. Okay, So uh, let's think through what's going on with Genesis and, and what, uh, what, is, what is taking place here. The title, Genesis, right? Where does that, where does that even come from? Uh, Old Testament literature frequently does not give a title, right? So just like chapters and just like verses, someone's got to come along behind and say, well, that's what we're going to call this. Uh, as far as Hebrew texts were concerned, typically the title came from the first couple words uh, that, were, that were given to you there in the Old Testament. And so the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is one of the first three words that's there, right? For our purposes, since you don't know Hebrew and I'm not that great with Hebrew, um, for our purposes, the English version of this comes kind of through hops. Uh, there was a Greek translation called the Septuagint uh, that was recorded. You'll see it often as LXX if you're looking at a commentary. Uh, that was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. That took that title, translated it into Greek. Latin Vulgate came along a little bit later, drawing heavily from that Septuagint, and that's where we get this word Genesis from. It's, it's really more the Latin. So a couple, couple hops from what you saw in Hebrew there, right? Uh, that word Genesis, and you can, you've seen this word in other places, right? You can see the genesis of something uh, that occurs. It means a source or an origin, okay? And as you think through what this book covers, you think through especially those first couple of chapters, it's a fitting title, isn't it? It makes, it makes sense. If you're going to title this book something, it really does make sense. Uh, and even as we're looking at themes, um, we're looking at foundations and faithfulness. Those are the themes that we are tying together. Those imply origin. Those imply source. We're talking about beginnings of things. And, and often what we are looking at in Genesis is we are looking at 
themes and ideas that are, that are going to be, uh, you can either look, think of it as a thread that starts in Genesis and weaves its way through. Uh, you can think of it as a seed that is planted and, and grows. Whatever metaphor it is that you want to use, Genesis is the start of most of those things. Okay? And so for that very reason alone, these themes that we're talking about, that the content of this, of this book is extremely important. Because if I expect to pick this up somewhere later on down the road, Sure, it's a whole lot easier if you got the foundation for where that thing started early on, right? So for that reason, Genesis is extremely important. Who wrote Genesis? Uh, Mark had it much easier this morning. Let me, let me do my best here. Uh, there has been a group of, of thought for the last uh, more modern uh, scholars uh, don't like to, to look at one single author. Uh, they, uh, they have come up with, with very, very elaborate and very complicated theories as to where Genesis comes from. Usually comes based off of names for God or it comes off the fact that they expect some kind of progress in religion that people are layering on top of. And so they, they, they have different, different sources that they think this material comes from. They identify them with letters and, and you could go on to this and look in your own time because this would take the entire lesson if I bothered to give you the, the explanation for it. Okay? I, I reject all of that. I, I don't think any of that is, is true. Everything that we see from internal references in the Old Testament and in the New Testament suggests that Moses is the author of what we would call the Pentateuch, or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, okay? the, first, the first five books of the Bible. Everything that we see uh, from scriptures indicates that he is the author of, of those books. Uh, the other scholars, as they and they've they've changed their tune a little bit with Dead Sea Scrolls. The other authors, really, their problem comes back to the fact that they don't trust Scripture and they, they don't believe uh, that God could have given all of this to one man and He simply recorded out. They they reject that. They struggle with that. They can't handle that. I think you and I today, as we stand in this room, we don't struggle with that. Right? Uh, we understand that that God has given these Scriptures. They are inspired. We may struggle with exactly how that looks and exactly trying to figure out what that may have felt like as that was taking place, uh, but that's what we believe, okay? So uh, this was given. Uh, we believe this was, was given by Moses. Uh, this is what the, 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 the Hebrews have thought for, for years upon end. Early church thought about this. Uh, it's simply more uh, modern scholars as they have gotten in there and kind of mucked about as, we were, as it were, and they've kind of made that murky, but there's, there's no real reason to, to think that's going to be the case. Uh, this is not to say that Moses is not drawing, perhaps, from some external sources and, and including that into Genesis. It's not to say that at all. Uh, you think about Moses' upbringing, and again, this is where we're doing some wide-ranging themes, right? We're talking about what's going on here in Scripture. You think about Moses' upbringing, and Moses comes up in the court of Pharaoh. Uh, chances are very good that Moses was a highly educated man. And part of that education may very well have been understanding uh, the history of nations around him. And he may have had text, as would have been the tradition of the time, that he memorized, that were committed to memory, and that he's pulling out. And so you look at chapters like chapter 36, and you see this detailed listing of all the, the Edomite kings and their chiefs and everything that's going on there. It's not entirely, it's not improbable that Moses has this memorized from when he was in Pharaoh's court and is reproducing this and puts this out and says, by the way, this is, this is what was going on over here, okay? God, as part of inspiration, did use people and their knowledge and, and their experiences I, didn't, I did say we weren't going to reference John, but reference John, right? As he is giving eyewitness, eyewitness testimony to Jesus Christ. He's pulling from what he knows. In addition to the inspiration uh, that is being given, God is making use of that as that is going on. Okay? So, so Moses may very well have pulled in a couple sources, but 
The way that that book looks, the way that it feels, its contents, its materials are guided by inspiration, and that's why it exists. Okay, So some, some distinctions there as we go through. Uh, knowing that it is Moses makes it a little bit easier, not, not terribly easier, but a little bit easier in terms of when this book is going to be written. Okay? Uh, chances are we're probably looking at the middle of the 13th century, okay? maybe early to mid, uh, by the time we, we, we parse out where he could have been. Uh, Moses, as you look at Moses' life, uh, he has an early part that's in Egypt. Right where he is, where he is living, he is growing up, he's being educated. Uh, then he is, uh, he decides that he's going to take matters into his own hands and ends up fleeing. He lives a good deal of time out in the wilderness, right? And then God appears to him in the burning bush and and brings Moses back, and all the events of the Exodus uh, begin to take place, right? And and we're leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, and then we're we're leading them to Mount Sinai, and then we're leading them into the land of Canaan. And then, nope, we're not going in. All right, this is not going to happen. Then we wander around in the wilderness for 40 years, okay? So Moses, if we're going to say that Moses wrote this book, you got a long period of time in which you could say that Moses could have written this. Based on the fact that we don't see Moses really operating in a prophetic role before the burning bush, makes you think it probably happens after the fact, right? So we can kind of say, well, we, we bet, we can imagine that it's probably in the later part. Uh, it's hard to imagine, not impossible, uh, that, that maybe Moses got this during the Exodus. Right? It seems like there's a lot of other stuff going on. That's an awful lot at one time. So probably, I think it would be more likely this was written sometime in the wilderness. Now, take your pick. Is it before the, the first, uh, first attempted entrance and then they come back, or is it after? I think it's probably after, but that's, you can't hold anyone to that, right? Uh, but it would make sense uh, that it would be after the words. And I think this because... As you look through, and we'll look at this here in a minute, uh, some of the the ideas that are presented for us here, uh, Genesis serves as a very good instructional book for the children of Israel to understand the context that they were walking into. It's very difficult for me to imagine that they would have responded the way that they did or obeyed the way that they did or or reacted the way that they did early on in, in even Deuteronomy and into Joshua if they didn't have the book of Genesis. And you think about that, that first initial group of people that come out from the Exodus, right? And then they refuse to go in, right? These people are too big. They're too strong. We can't do it, right? And it's determined that entire generation has to pass away before the next generation can come in. What do you want to do with that next generation? You, you want to teach them, don't you? You want, to, you want to get them grounded. You want to get them established. And so much the same way as Mark was talking this morning on Proverbs, where that was a, that was a book that was written from a father to, to his sons, sons plural, sons singular. Uh, this makes sense to me that Genesis is serving in a very similar fashion. Right? It's designed as a, as a textbook, as it were, to fill in gaps for that generation that's sitting out in the wilderness. Uh, where have you come from? How did you get there? Why did these things happen? And what is getting ready to come down the road? And Genesis bothers to answer a good bit of those questions. And so I think that Genesis probably was given by God to Moses while they're probably out there in that 40-year wilderness as they're wandering around, and there's a lot, 40 years is a lot of time, right, to, to get a book written and start teaching that thing out. Uh, I think it was probably written to establish those children of Israel for their for that journey into the promised land so that they know this is what is going to happen. They know this is why uh, we are here and this is how we have gotten to this place. And so I think in many ways, uh, while it's difficult to know and to detail it for certain, I think it makes sense that this book would be instructional in nature and and would form a good good foundation uh, for the children of Israel. Okay, So 
this kind of gets all the, the introductory material through. What are, what are some of the, the themes as we look at the, at the book of Genesis? I'm going to branch these out in, into two, two broad themes, and we'll develop them a little bit, some points underneath, just to give us some organization. You could do this a couple different ways, but for our purposes this morning, I'm going to, to branch this out into, into two real groups. One is going to be foundations. The second part is going to be faithfulness. Okay, so foundations and, and faithfulness. Uh, when we think about foundations, what are, we, what are we talking about here? What kind of themes are we talking about? Well, the first one, the most obvious one, is creation, isn't it? We're going to be looking at this next week and the week after. So we're taking roughly a chapter, chapter a week. So uh, introduction this week, I'll do chapter one, I'll do chapter two. Uh, then Mark will take over for three weeks and chapter, uh, chapter three, four, five, I can't count. Three, four, five, and we'll keep going from there. You can do the rest of the math, okay? Uh, that's, that's how we're going to be handling things. But you think about those first two chapters, are they foundational? Amen. Absolutely they are. Right? Everything comes down to these two chapters. Uh, everything comes down for the children of Israel for these two chapters. Everything comes down to these first two chapters for us as well. Right? How does this earth get here? How, how, does it, how, how, did this, how did all these things come to be? How did you and I come to be? Uh, right? how does, uh, why do squirrels do what they do? And, and why do oak trees look the way that they do? And why do, uh, why do birds swarm the way that they do? And fish in schools the way that they do? Everything that you are looking at on this earth, how did this, how did this arrive? How did, it, how did it come to be? Genesis forms a foundation. It answers those questions. That's something that's challenging for us today, as there are competing views on what that foundation looks like. It was just as controversial in the children of Israel were getting it. Everyone else had creation accounts, only it was some god doing this, or a couple gods doing this, or another fight that broke out between some gods, and they got to do these things. Don't think that this creation account is any more controversial now than it was then. It was equally as controversial. And so it was equally as important for the children of Israel then to know that this is what the foundations of the world looks like. This is the God who created all these things and can create all these things as it is for you and I today to know this is the God who has created these things and there is value and there is meaning in these things. It's been just as important all the time. It just happens to be that we think it's more important now because there's been more controversy about it here recently, right? So creation, a foundational idea. Sin. Sin. Right? Within, by chapter 3, we have sin entering the picture. By chapter 4, we have murder. Those of you who know my preference in movies know that this is, I mean, we're scooting along really good. I like this plot. Uh, you know, I love a good murder early on. We've got one. Right? But uh, this is tragic, is it not? There's four people probably on the face of the earth, and you already have a murder. Right? You, think, you, think about what is, you think about what is going on here, right? For the children of Israel, for you and I, do I need to know about sin? Do I need to understand sin in myself and sin in others? Well, absolutely, right? Absolutely, I need to know these things. And Genesis wastes no time getting there because human beings waste no time uh, getting there, right? And these are important things for us to understand. Think about everything that comes about later. Think about the law as Moses is receiving the law and we're giving out commandments, don't do these things. Right? And we're going to have to go back to murder. Uh, right? Uh, there, the, you cannot understand what is going on even in Exodus or Deuteronomy if you don't understand what took place back here in Genesis. All of these things are foundational. The reason why I have laws are because there are sin. And then we'll find out later in the New Testament those two are playing with each other uh, quite more interestingly than we would have thought. Right? This foundation of sin is absolutely pivotal. 
And it will continue to play out as we look at murders between, Adam, between Cain and Abel. As we look at a, a, a mankind that is continuing and escalating in their sin to the point where God determines that it is fit and it is right to wipe them all out. Right? Not only then do you learn about sin, but you learn about God's response to sin. How seriously he takes it. Judgment, right? So sin and judgment become pivotal early on in the, in the book of Genesis as we look through. It's a foundation, and, and it's important to, to think about and understand. The patriarchs, right? So moving, moving forward a little bit, suddenly in chapter 12, uh, we have a man who shows up on the scene. Right? We have a man named Abraham. Right? And what a, what a difference this makes for the rest of the book, and what a difference this makes for the rest of the children of Israel, because everything for them tracks back to this guy. Right? Abraham, becomes, Abraham becomes critical. And as we watch what is going on, we learn that not only is, is Abraham important, but, but now Isaac is important. And now, and now Jacob is important. And when we get to the person of Joseph, who seems kind of like an unlikely character, I mean, he's not the, the three, right? We think about the patriarchs. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But by the time you get to Joseph, Joseph's narrative, that, that story that, that is formed there from Joseph, explains to Israel, this is how you got down to Egypt. Because otherwise, you just pick up an exodus, and it's been 400 years since Jacob has, has died. It's been 400 years. It's hard to know whether the children of Israel, as they were coming out in, in Exodus, how much they even remembered or knew about what was going on with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph fills in that gap, right? This is how you ended. This is how Joseph ended up down in Egypt, right? Very bad story. Uh, this, is, this is what happened when Joseph is down there. And this is how everyone else ends up coming down. Right? And in the process, you learn uh, what is, how this has happened, but you also get a good picture for God, don't you? The one who is moving behind all of these things, the one who is providing for all of these things, the one who is guiding all of these things. Uh, through these men, you learn not only about the men, and you learn not only this is how these things have taken place, but you end up learning about God as well as you watch his interaction with them. So the patriarchs as well. And then context. Context. Again, when the children of Israel go into the land of Canaan, who are they going to find? Who's there? Canaanites. Yeah, good answer, right? Canaanites. Right? But where did they, where did they come from? How do they fit into things? Right? Why, why, are we, why are we allowed to get rid of all these guys? Right? Why am I not allowed to get rid of the Edomites? Or the Moabites? Or the Ammonites? Right? Why, why, how, what, what is going on here? Genesis answers all of those questions, right? You're going into the land of Canaan because it was promised to you, right? You're going in 400 years later because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. And when you go in, you're going to take care of all these Canaanites, but you're leaving Edomites alone because of the descendants of Esau, and he's your brother. You don't touch him. You leave Ammon and Moab alone because these are the descendants of Lot through another interesting story, right? That They are also kindred. You leave them alone. We find out there's Midianites running around. You know, there's Ishmaelites that are running around. We learn everything that is going on in the land of Canaan because of the context of Genesis. Genesis even goes so far as to describe the giants that are in the land and tells you they can be destroyed by other people, which makes the children of Israel balking when they come to the corner of the land silly because if God could, could destroy the people who destroyed the people who destroyed the giants, couldn't God just destroy the giants? 
All right? It's a context that is being built for the children of Israel. As they go into the land, they understand why these people are there, who they are, why we're going to get rid of them, and who we can't touch. Right? He's, Genesis is giving you all of that background to understand everything that is going on there. Right? And so it forms a foundation for them. If you go into Exodus and you haven't read, <laughs> if you haven't read Genesis... Not a lot of it makes sense. You read Deuteronomy and you haven't looked at Genesis. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Right? You need that foundation. You need that context for understanding uh, what is going on there and, and why it's going on. Right? So the, the foundations, the foundations of, of what is taking place. Then you have the faithfulness, the faithfulness of God. This is where we start to take that theological bent a little more, isn't it? Right, especially once we hit chapter 12 and onward, uh, we start to get a very clear picture of who God is, even, even more than what we had before. Early on, as we look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we, we understand that God is, is, is powerful. Right? He can create this universe. He can, he can form it in six days right? and rest on the seventh. Uh, we understand that he is a righteous God. Right, that he does not, he does not countenance sin. He will, in fact, he will judge sin. Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden. Uh, the world is is overthrown with the flood as sin as sin is is persisting. Uh, we'll see later on that that Sodom and Gomorrah also judged. Right, we 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 understand who God is. We under we understand how He operates. Uh, but once we hit chapter twelve and we begin looking at the life of Abraham. Uh, covenants start to become a more important issue, right? And through covenants, we begin to understand more about the nature of God. Uh, it, it, is, it is astonishing that God even bothers to give covenants. Covenants that, that, are, that are given there are, are a, man's, a man-made institution, okay? And, and for the holy God to come down and say, I'm binding myself to you, I'm promising myself to you, and doing it in a way that they understand a covenant, they're making covenants all the time in this period of time. You see, you see Abraham uh, making covenants with Abimelech here in this passage. You see Isaac uh, making covenants with Abimelech. They understand covenants. This is, this is something that they understand. This is, a, this is a way of dealing with individuals that they understand. They get it. And here God comes down. The Most High God condescends down and begins to relate to people in a way that they can understand. It's revelation is what it is. It's revelation. It's grace. It, it, it's, it, 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 it's governing the way that things are going to take place and laying out the way that things are going to take place. But at its purest form, it is revelation. It is God revealing himself to men and making himself known that I'm going to do this to you. And it's incredible that a holy God, the most high God, who is powerful enough to do what he wants, clearly, right? He can create everything. He can destroy everything. And yet he condescends down to deal with man, to promise himself to man, to bind himself to man, right? You start to deal with the concept of faithfulness, right? It's the faithfulness of God as well, not the faithfulness of men. As we look at the faithfulness of God, we learn that God is sovereign in his covenants. He is sovereign in his covenants. Every time that we look at the covenants as they roll around, Noah is a good example. It's an early one, right? Um, Then we have Abraham, and God promises again to renew it to Isaac, and then he promises again to renew it to Jacob. Every time that you see God, um, you see these covenants that are being made with God, God is the initiator. Man man cannot come along and say, you know what, God, I'm putting you in a covenant. We we got to work this thing out. We're going to do this thing, and you're going to deal with me on my terms. That's not how this works. 
right? It is God coming to man and saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is how this is going to work. Not only is God the initiator of all these covenants, but it is God who is able to choose who will be the recipients of these covenants. And this becomes crucial, doesn't it? Abraham has two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And who does God make the covenant with? Isaac. Abraham would rather it be Ishmael. He really would. This is my son Ishmael. Couldn't it be through him? And God says, no, it will not be through Ishmael. It will go through Isaac. Isaac, what happens again? It's the same thing, is it not? You have Jacob and you have Esau. Who does Isaac want? Isaac wants Esau, does he not? Because Esau makes that great food. (laughs) He goes out, he kills those deer. It's really, really good. I want it to be Esau. But is it going to be Esau? It's not going to be Esau. It can never be Esau. Jacob's Jacob's deceptions aside, Rebekah's interceptions aside, those don't matter. It was never going to be Esau. It was going to be Jacob. Because God said so. Because God promised this was going to be the case. God is sovereign in his covenants. Man cannot bind God in any way. Man Man cannot initiate it in any way. And man cannot even say, well, it's going to be me. I'm going to get it. It doesn't work that way. God is sovereign in his covenants. Right? And we learn this early on in the book of, in the book of, uh, in the book of Genesis as the foundation. God is gracious in his covenants. For starters, the very idea of the covenants is gracious, is it not? A holy God coming down, dealing with men and saying, I'm going to do this thing. That is, that is beyond gracious. But as you look at the patriarchs, these guys are not upstanding citizens in many respects. These men are weak. These men are sinful. Sometimes they're just downright stupid. Right? And yet God continues to uphold these faithfulness with him. You think Abraham is even one that we would admire. Look at, look at the way that he's willing to offer up Isaac. Right? That's, that's really commendable. There's a lot that you can say about Abraham. And yet Abraham is a fearful man. When he is wandering around and he's going to all these other nations, he says to Sarah, hey, um, just pretend that you're my sister. Now, he is, she is the sister, but just pretend that you're my sister. Let's, let's leave this whole husband and wife thing out of there. Why? Abraham's terrified. Abraham, Abraham is terrified and is willing to put Sarah in very bad and very awkward situations to save his own skin. Is that someone you role model after? It is not, right? Isaac will pick it up. Isaac will try the same trick within a generation. He tries the same thing with Rebecca. A little less overt, a little less dangerous, but he goes and tries to do the exact same thing. Isaac wants it to be Esau, does everything that he can. Of course, that's not going to work. And then what about Jacob? A liar, a deceiver, a weirdo. His little agriculture scheme, putting these, cutting these, these rods and putting stripes in them, hoping that, that if the cows will produce striped cows because they're mating in front of these striped poles. Agriculture doesn't work that way. It, do, it doesn't happen that way. But, I, but Jacob thinks he can make it happen. Jake, Jacob's a supplanter. He's a deceiver. He, I, I, can, I can make this work. We, we can do this thing, Right? These guys, are, these guys are boneheads in many respects, and, and they're sinful, and they're, and they're liars, and they're deceivers, and they're awful individuals in some respects. And yet God keeps these covenants with them. God knew they were like this and made these covenants with them. Right? It is the grace of God that displays itself through these covenants as he condescends, as he reveals himself to them and makes himself known. One of the themes that we see is the grace of God through these covenants. But the grace 
that exceeds in these covenants does not live to unlimited license. There are still consequences, are there not? One of the firmest examples that you could see comes later, and it seems kind of bizarre at the moment. But as Judah is, is starting to have sons, and he has three sons, we find that two of them are wicked. They are wicked, and they are so wicked that God will strike them both dead. But wait, aren't these children a promise? <laughs> aren't, these, aren't these heirs of these covenants, these inheritances? Yep. But does that mean they can just do whatever they want? The answer is no. The answer is no, there are consequences, right? Just as God is willing to judge Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin and wipe them off the face of the earth, just as much as God is willing to be able to take the flood and wipe sinful men off the face of the earth, the children of Israel themselves cannot count on the fact that they are Abraham's seed to guarantee they will not be judged. And in, and in that chapter with Judah, as bizarre as that chapter gets, and it gets bizarre, as bizarre as that chapter gets, one of the purposes is to make it clear to the children of Israel, you sin against me, you are wicked, I will judge you. Don't think that I won't, right? And he makes it clear, and he, and he drives that point home in the middle of everything else that's going on there, right? It is not an unlimited license to sin. God will still hold them accountable for their sin. There will still be consequences. There will still be judgment. And then most importantly, Genesis lays down the foundations for Christ. You cannot miss this. Turn, if you would, with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We know that, that Moses uh, does not know who Christ is, uh, although Moses knows that Christ is coming, right? That, that prophet uh, that is to come, as, as he refers to him later on in Deuteronomy. But even though Moses does not know, the children of Israel do not know until much later, in Genesis we are getting the foundations for Christ and, and who he is. Paul makes this clear for us here. As we look in, in Galatians chapter 3, uh, Paul is, is really going backwards and he's kind of, kind of backfilling. Right? He's making things clear to the Galatians here, how this is working, uh, and it's not necessarily the way they would think. If you look in Galatians chapter 3, let me read verses uh, 6 for you here. Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who have faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. Even then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, As cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Jesus Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so they would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promise is spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I am saying is the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For the, if the inheritance is based on law, 
It is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted to Abraham by means of a promise. What is Paul doing here? Paul is running back to Abraham, and he's trying to answer this question, what about, what about the law? Right? What about the law? I mean, after all, Moses comes down later with the law, and he reiterates it again later on in Deuteronomy. What about this law? Isn't that, isn't that how we keep this land? Isn't that how we are becoming righteous? Isn't that how all this is supposed to work? Everything comes back to the law, doesn't it? Everything comes back to the law. And Paul is saying, nope. Nope. The law comes later. The law is added in addition, and we know that this is to bring men under guilt before God. We know that it is because of sin, right, to make sin abundantly obvious. We can pull from other of Paul's passages in Romans and fill some of this in. But the law does not change the fundamental promise that was made to Abraham, right? And Paul says, go back to that promise. Pay attention to what was in that promise. It was not to the seeds, but it was to the seed, which is Christ, right? And so uh, what Paul is saying, you go back to Genesis, you look and see what is going on here, and you will find Christ to be the fulfillment of that. Uh, You find him in Genesis chapter 3, right? As soon as sin comes on the picture, we understand that there's a Savior as well, right? Someone who will do something about this serpent, right? A a, a seed that will come later on that will will bring things about. And as we think and as we look later on in Old Testament and in New Testament passages and even in Old Testament passages, we understand that there's going to be a second Adam, right? One who is going to come around and take these things back to the way they were supposed to be, right? To redeem uh, what has has fallen, to redeem uh, what has been marred. Christ's coming, though, if you don't go back to Genesis, you miss out on that, right? You're missing out on the foundations. You're missing out on the basis of part of what Christ is here to do, which is to take you back to what things were before, to redeem that sinful sinful curse that comes into this world, which puts all men under bondage, which puts the entire earth under bondage and groaning, right? It is Christ who is coming to, to redeem that. It is Christ who is coming to fix that. It is Christ who is coming to remake those things and, and to make them better uh, because sin has been dealt with at that point and there's never any need to go back and deal with that again. Right? Genesis may not ever say Jesus Christ, but Genesis points forward to Jesus Christ an awful lot. Right? And as we go through this book, we are going to be focused on that. We, we want to see that. The, the golden thread, as, as Mark referenced here this morning, right? You see that throughout, uh, you see that being woven in throughout uh, Genesis. You see that being planted in Genesis. Again, whatever metaphor it is you want to use, you see that starting and it continues to grow and, and it continues to blossom and it continues to become richer and more full as we go through. But the foundations for it are here in Genesis. The, the, the origins of it are here in Genesis. The sources of it all start with Genesis. And so for us, Genesis is critical because it starts those themes that are critical to us. Right? It tells us that there is a Savior coming. It tells us why uh, we need this Savior. It tells us that this has been God's plan from the very beginning uh, to, to send this Savior. Right? And all of these things are in his control. And all of these things are being done uh, out of his grace, out of his mercy, and out of his love for this creation that he has made. And we're just the beneficiaries. We're sitting there slumbering, just like Abraham was, while a covenant is being made over us, and we are the beneficiaries of those things, right? This, this is what Genesis is laying the foundation for. This is what Genesis is preparing us for. 
And, and we want to put those pieces together, right? To, to see where that is coming out of Genesis, to lay the foundations for that, and, and then build on that as we go through. Uh, so as, you, as we prepare week on week, uh, go ahead, read ahead. Uh, read ahead for Genesis chapter 1. That's where we'll be next week. And we'll be thinking about uh, what those six days of creation look like and what it tells us about the Father and what it tells us about us and, and what it tells us about this creation as we look around there. And then read forward the next week to chapter 2 and then read forward to chapter 3 uh, because we'll be there and we're going to be pulling these themes out of Scripture because this is what, this is what has been laid for us here. Okay? Well, let's pray and, and we'll be dismissed. Father, again, we, we thank you for this book. Father, for, for the enormity of it in many ways, and yet for the simplicity of it as well. Uh, it's so easy to understand that you created the heavens and the earth. Uh, we can teach that to children, and we can teach it clearly, and we can teach it well, uh, Father. And, and yet, as we think upon a simple truth like that, all these complexities rage around us. Uh, Father, as we think through uh, you, the way that you are upholding all things, as we think through the, the purpose for which all of these things are created, uh, as we think through your, your redemptive plan that has existed before time and space, uh, Father, all of these things bring us back to you, and all of these things both amaze us with their simplicity uh, and, and amaze us with their, with their complexity as well. Father, I pray that as we, as we spend this year uh, going through Genesis, that it's profitable for us. As we think through the foundations you have laid, as we think through who you are, as we think through who we are and how much we need you and how much we need your grace. Uh, Father, I, again, I pray that we are drawn to worship. I pray that we are drawn to praise. And I pray that we find ourselves meditating uh, on these things for, for, our, for our good and for your glory. So give us grace again for these. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.